Crank up the volume and get ready for real-world bird hunting by listening to the Wingman Podcast by Eastman's. Now your host, Todd Helms. Hey gang, the sponsor for today's episode of the Wingman Podcast is Sitka. And if you haven't, you know, if you haven't been over to sitkagear.com and checked out all the stuff that they've got on that website for waterfowl, man, uh, you need to. I am a firm believer that if, if you are comfortable you will be more effective in the field. You know, if, if you're protected from the elements, if you're dry and you're not cold, you're not too hot, any of those things, you're going to be a more effective hunter. And Sitka has us covered in that regard, literally. You know, I am a huge fan of their Gradient series, their Hudson series. That Gradient hoodie, man, it seems like I never took that thing off last year. When we got snow, I just switched to wearing the white one. And it was just an integral piece of my kit all year long. You know, another piece that I just absolutely love is the Fahrenheit series, the Fahrenheit vest in particular. You throw on the Fahrenheit vest over a base layer, maybe underneath a gradient hoodie, and then throw a Hudson jacket over the top. Man, there's not much weather that you can't endure. And you're going to be more effective out there because you're comfortable. So... Thank you to Sitka for sponsoring this episode of the, of the Wingman Podcast. And if you haven't been over to SitkaGear.com, go check them out. All right. Hey, gang. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Wingman Podcast. And I am fortunate enough to have Ramsey Russell of GetDucks.com with me today. We've tried this a couple times, Ramsey, and it, it, it wasn't. we had some technical difficulties. We ran into a few snags, but here we are. We're on together. Man, we had some phenomenal conversations started, and I'm hoping we can pick back up where that left off. But uh, I want to say thank you for thank you for being on the podcast with us. And give us the give us the short spiel about who Ramsey Russell is and who Get Ducks is. Hey, I appreciate y'all having me. And uh, I think the reason we're having tef- technical difficulty is because my wife is the brain that I'm the good look. <laughs> and I can tell from looking through the screen, you probably got somebody just like that. It's the same, bro, same <laughs> thing over here, brother. <laughs> oh, man. Anything more than a smartphone and I'm lost. But uh, I, I don't know where to start. A lot of people, I've told my story a lot. GetDucks.com has been around for 20 years. And uh, right out of college, bought a really, really, really bad hunt. And, uh, and back before the internet was really the internet, just kind of researched around through magazines and television and found an outfitter up in Alberta, went up there and hunted with him instead. It was awesome. Came back the next year with more people the next year with more people. He called me aside for cold beer and said, Hey, I'd like you to be my booking agent. I'm like, what the hell is a booking agent? I'm a forester with the U S federal government. And, uh, he said, well, I want you to sell my hunt and man, you know, I was right on my way in a federal career as a, as a registered forester and a certified wildlife biologist, never dreamed that uh, midway through that career, I would hit a crossroads and decide to go into this thing full time. <clears throat> and I, I tell you something very importantly, I learned is that this business commands full time. Somebody asked oh, yeah. me the other day, they oh, yeah. said, uh, one of the kids I went, one of the guys I went, one of the men I went to high school with, he was a kid then. He asked me, he said, man, this get ducks thing keep you busy? Is it a full-time job? And I go, man, it keeps my wife and I busy for eight days a week. 
Right. You know, if we, we right. never leave the office. We'll, we'll look around at the desk and I say, baby, it's two o'clock at night. You know, it's two o'clock in the morning. Ready to go to bed. Let's buy a stopping place. But, but that brings <laughs> up a good point. You know, I, I grew up duck hunting. I love to duck hunt. But it, it's 20 years later. Getducks.com, the web page, uh, the, the, the total package has become so much more than just duck hunting. It, it's almost become a, a, a life purpose. It, it, it consumes me. But that's what we do. And I, I'll tell you something very interesting is I, I really did kind of start down the rabbit hole of international wing shooting, collecting species, collecting the North American, not the 41, but the, the big list, uh, close to 55 or 60. Um, and then I realized beyond those borders, there's a whole world full of waterfowl species. And I've been fortunate enough to collect a bunch of them on six continents. But I grew up hunting, just roughing it, just uh, standing crotch deep in button bushes or huddled up in the in the, in the the buck vines, you know, in the mud, that kind of hunting, just down and dirty. And since doing it, I've realized chasing those species around the world with the different cultures and the different creeds and the different colors and the different religions and the the whole ball of wax is is uh, it's so much more to it than just species. How I grew up hunting, crotch deep in in a in the button bushes. Uh, wow, has that changed? Hunting them, hunting them uh, as you as you chase ducks around and hunt it, you know, when in Rome type ways. It it just changes it's different you know it's it, the world's a lot bigger than our own backyards todd and it's, it's like you know I've, I've, I've shot them uh in the mornings in the afternoons uh in flooded timber and emergent marsh and all these different habitats uh I, i've shot them at night i've shot them by light i've shot them over bait where it's legal i've shot them with electronic calls where it's legal with the, uh, live decoys where it's legal I've, I've jump shot them. I've pass shot them. I've shot them at 16,000 foot elevation. I've shot them 400 feet below sea level. Uh, one of the most humbling experiences was on the Bering Sea shooting eiders. I'm not a huge fan of sea duck hunting. It just doesn't vibrate, but you got to go there to get those species. Right, right. Uh, one of the coolest places, Mongolia, we'd driven for six hours on tire tracks through this wide open wilderness where most people go to shoot horned animals. Right. Uh, chasing bar-headed geese and uh, ruddy shell ducks. And, and it's, it's, it's just the craziest thing. We stopped for lunch, and there was this refrigerator-sized stone and uh, had some flowers and stuff around it. Right in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you, you, absolutely in the middle of nowhere. And in both Mongolia in the middle of nowhere, and on St. Paul Island in the middle of the Barren Sea, you know, I've never felt so insignificant relative to the universe because you're just out there. And my host pointed to that stone and said, that's a headstone. And this was a well, massive rock. I wonder. I go, I go, a headstone for who? He goes, nobody knows. It's it's over 2,000 years old. Oh. And I go, you're kidding. <clears throat> and he goes, and what's so interesting is that particular stone isn't found in Mongolia. It, it's the its nearest source is about 1,500, 2,000 miles from here. So they hauled that thing in. Yeah. For That's who? crazy. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Some, com, some, yeah. And you Somebody see stuff important. like that. 
you know, all of my, a lot of my clients collect birds and collect species, and I respect that because I kind of do too. But I've got a tiny, tiny little game room. It, it, it's actually a little living room with chairs and a TV and a bar. It's where we just, it's where we hang out at camp. And it's just, whew, so many, it's too many. I tell my kids all the time when I die, you know, y'all just bring up a big dumpster and all the air is gone over. It's too much. But I, find, I just realized one time I, somebody will pull, you know, that far headed goose, that red crested poacher, that capricaylee. That's something else. That's something else, you know. And as I start telling the stories about those birds, Todd, it always, always, always comes back to people. Yeah. That particular person or that particular place or those people in that place or the way we hunted over those crude decoys or those hand handmade boats or barefooted in, in, in ice water. I mean, it's just always something different. And that's, that's really and truly what compels me about what I do and see in the world. It's not, it's really just not the species and it's way beyond the numbers game. I don't count ducks. I don't, I don't, I, I shoot a lot of ducks in the course of a year because I normally hunt when COVID's not around, I may hunt 200, 225 days a year. Right. But I have no idea or, or even interest in how many ducks I shoot because to me, the numbers, just the numbers almost cheap in the sport yeah that's, that's kind of sort of who i am and where i'm coming from you know one of the things that i've seen <clears throat> obviously i've watched quite a bit of your youtube stuff and listened to podcasts and one of the things and it resonates ramsey one of the things that you're talking about is you know the headstone for example people might go with you and think they're collecting ducks but they're collecting a lot more than ducks they're collecting experiences, man. Right, exactly. They are. Everybody says, you know, we all get it. Everybody you talk to in a safari club type environment, oh, heck yeah, there's there's guys that are chasing trophy animals. And I, I mean, you know, big record animals. And I respect that, man, because that, that's taking it to another level. You know why I don't collect uh, trophy game animals is because somebody asked me one time, he said, man, I can't believe you're not a trophy hunter in that truest sense because – you travel 6,800 miles from home to shoot a certain species of bird. And I go, yeah, but the difference is this. The first one's kind of special. The next hundred is just like the first. They're all red-crested poachers. They're all bar-headed geese. They're all rosy-billed poachers. You see what I'm saying? They're all the same. You, know, you shot one, Rick Mallard, you shot them all. Shot one, you shot them all. And, uh, and I want to shoot a million more, but I'm just saying, you shot <laughs> one, you shot them all. Yeah, and the ways the ways you do it are different. You know, like you, you're talking about all these different places you go. And I, I grew up a lot further north than you, but probably hunted ducks pretty similarly. You know, you talk about standing in knee-deep, waist-deep water and hunting floodings and here and there and real similar, real similar circumstances. So then when I get a chance to hunt mallards or whatever in a different setting, whether it's, whether it's pit corn out here in the West or, you know, it, who knows, big, big marsh stuff that's special but the duck is still the duck it's the way i'm doing it it's who i'm with it's the experience that makes it the next gate the next great hunt is closer than you think you know i've i have been fortunate to travel all over the world i've got a lot of other places i want to go but but i do believe a man could commit himself to hunting just in the continental 48 and if you look at take real foot lake versus oregon versus mississippi versus arkansas versus michigan versus maine J just the different as i've noticed the different 
double reeds versus single reeds versus metal reeds, the different cadences of the matters. If you're hunting sea ducks, if you're hunting diver ducks, if you're hunting puddle ducks, if you're hunting in the timber, if you're hunting in the marsh, if you're hunting in the flooded ag, just the subtle little differences. And plus the fact we're blessed with so many ducks, geese, and swans. Right. You know, you, you, by the time you ferret out the species and go into the little localities and, and ferret out all the different techniques and the different styles and the different little, uh, almost like colloquialisms, it, 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 it's endless. It's endless. And, and I'm fascinated by it. And man, when you fall off into some of these, these areas that are just steeped and, and this this history and this heritage of like Chesapeake Bay or, or Tuckerton, right. New Jersey. <clears throat> right. It's incredible. It, it's just incredible. And I, I don't know what it is that compels me about it. I tell people all the time, I feel a lot like I'm walking through the pages of old school National Geographic magazine, but with a <laughs> but with but with a shotgun and hip. Right, right, right. You know, and I I really dig it. I, I just get into it. Oh, it's cool, and it's it's a it's fun to talk to you about that because you're a guy that's that's done things that maybe a lot of other maybe a lot of other guys aren't going to get a chance to do or would really like to, and it's all you know. There's things that are on their bucket lists, but can you talk about that history, that culture? You've been all over the place. Um, you and I dove into a relate into a relationship into a kind of felt like relationship at the time. <laughs> Yeah. Into, a, into a conversation about uh about how we do things here in the u.s even conservation based versus in other places i think i think that's a that's one of the most uh surprising observations i made now look i predicate this statement by saying this you know going back to tuckerton new jersey to chesapeake bay to the market hunting to the that whole thing you know, since then, we Americans have elevated waterfowl hunting to art form. Yeah. The calls, the decoys, the clothing, the the uh, the boats, the motors, camo, the ammo, the whole bottle wax, everything is state of the art. And and uh, nobody, no other culture does duck hunting like Americans when you go to places like Argentina that do it well when you go to places like Mexico that do it good Australia really does it well they borrow from that most people don't to to the extreme would be Mongolia you Uh show up and there's a staff of 10 and they know where the wetlands are so they know where the ducks are you're hunting them in April by the way and uh, it's not a trigger pulling contest it's maximum 30 species or 30 ducks and so you don't really waste your shotgun shells on mallards and pintails although i have because given the chance to hunt mallards and pintails that have never been shot at who can pass <laughs> that up yeah no kidding you know? and uh th- that was a real interesting story how we set up on those birds but 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 to the extreme you know you show up there's eight of them they got a pair of binoculars and one pair of rubber boots no waders no decoys no nothing and they point and there you are and so, you know, you're 7,000 some odd miles from home. And if you didn't bring it, you ain't got it. Right. So everybody brought a few decoys. Everybody brought a few calls. I brought, of course, a mojo, a dove, because they travel easy. And that works just as well. And and we scout and we put together and we hunt. And we notice what the birds are doing. And we start putting together plans for the different species. Russia, 
fine example. I'm going to hunt the white sea in May for eiders. Uh, and so I, and I knew them Russians didn't know how to hunt. So I brought long lines. I brought eider decoys. I, we were going to troll out there on the white sea. And I get, I get on the step on this little speedboat, this little metal speedboat. He speaks no English. I speak uh, no, no Russian. Thumbs up, thumbs down. And what I learned is that don't always mean the same. Yeah. You know, it, uh, when I see thumbs up, I'm thinking, hey, the fonds, that's good. We're good to go. That may not mean that at all. Oh, know? man. So I get on this boat and I'm saying, hey, I'm trying to explain and hand signal. We're going to help. We're going to let these decoys. He's nodding his head to give me the thumbs up. And he, he puts the freaking throttle to the metal and off we go. I'm hanging on for dear life. And, uh, I guess the decoy stayed in the boat. I never saw them again, but that ain't how they hunt otters over there. They hunt otters as fast as they can. And I, I never will forget it's my turn to shoot. I'm holding a double trigger Russian collision cough over and under oh in my, my right gosh. hand. I'm hanging on to the old ship bar with my left hand. My legs are spread. I'm pressing up against the gun walls. So, so when we hit them waves, I don't come out the top. And it's like the world stopped down to slow motion. We're, we're, whew, Evil can navel over a four-foot wave. I'm looking over the gun barrel holding it one hand, and that's where that otter turns to his left and looks left and went, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> you know, and and I'm suspended between air, right eyeball level with him when he rolls. Kaboom, he rolls. Boom, we hit the water. Turn back around and go pick him up. That, now see, that ain't American. That's, that's, that's true running and gunning. That's, that's what that's that like, is. That's James Bond Russian... <laughs> You know, otter hunting, man. There ain't nothing like it. And uh, right about the time, and I just never forget the guy holding his thumb up, nodding his head like he understood perfectly what I meant about this. Yeah, yeah, no. But, but you know the interesting thing, because this brings up your question about conservation, Todd. Nobody else does what we do. Russia, for example, it was my host over in Russia. I asked him, and it's a broken English translation, but we belabored the point over vodka russia man look oh yeah when you're up and up up 20 kilometers from the arctic circle in may hunting capricalian sea ducks it's like two or three days into it somebody says what time is it you look at watch goes 10 o'clock you go a.m or p.m you shrugs i don't know it don't matter i mean you eat three meals a day you hibernate you get to go out and hunt about six hours when it's daylight and you lose track of time Sure. And uh, it, your, your whole diurnal system gets turned off. And uh, But at all three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you don't know which is which, there's vodka. And uh, and so it's everything you heard about Russia. They drink vodka. So one of the meals we were sitting down, I, I just asked uh, Lexi, I'm like, you know, well, how does this work? And what he explained to me is how it works is in big terms, the government just basically gives responsibility to the hunters because surely the hunters aren't going to shoot themselves out of house and home. That's kind of, Europe uh, has got laws. It's got bag limits. It's got some, you know, steel shot or regulations like that, but, but there's no bag limits on waterfowl. Okay. It's, it's bag limit free waterfowl. Argentina, there are bag limits, but there's gray areas, you know, and it's accepted, but, but universally, outside of the United States and Canada, let's say let's say outside the North American waterfowl, Mexico, uh, United States, Canada, yeah, they don't have what we've got. They don't have uh, a system 
a, a, a North American conservation plan. They don't have that. They don't have surveys. They don't have harvest data. They don't have band recoveries. They don't have scientists and biologists. You know, if you look at the look at our form of conservation here, what we enjoy in the United States, uh, you've got the several agencies in the U.S. federal government. You've got the state agencies. You've got universities doing research, doing studies galore, plus the the the, NG, uh, the, the federal. You got NGOs like Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl and countless more. At at, at uh, just a matter of scale. And just to, just look at what those three do. And I know I know from talking to people around it, some people don't like some of the NGOs. You know, I don't like these guys. I don't like those guys. I don't like what they do. Let me tell you, son, what they do is incredible. Yeah. You know, the federal government is doing a lot. Our federal government, uh, USGS, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, with, with the refuges, with the sanctuaries, with the habitat, with the uh, set aside for nesting grounds. We've got Ducks Unlimited pouring tons of money from the from the nesting grounds clear into the wintering grounds the staging areas in between uh you've got a tremendous amount of economic activity and scientifically based interest going into wildlife conservation in general waterfowl because you know our waterfowl in the northern hemisphere they migrate guess what in the southern hemisphere they don't migrate no they don't they just Argentina, Argentina, Peru, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, they're, they're, they're nomadic. They might shift four or 500 miles because it rained. I don't know how they knew it rained 500 miles away, but they do. They might shift a little bit to find, find habitat, but they don't migrate like okay. ours do. So it, you, can't just, uh, you can't just manage a migrating bird at one point on the, on the trajectory. He's got to be managed the entire way. Right. And that's a tremendous amount of effort. I mean, to me, it's it's a it's a it's a teamwork, uh, synergy, and accomplishment that that really is should be the envy of the world. But you know, the fourth pillar of conservation is, in my humble opinion, one of the biggest, and that's us hunters. That's us go. hunters, man. Because because you know, you look at the, the Pittman Robertson Act, federal federal, uh, the tax comes in spending. You look at look at uh. There's a lot of sales tax programs. Look at hunting license sales. Look at look at the entire economy. And I hear people say all the time, and I know you've heard this too, Todd. Well, now commercial hunting, uh, all this commercial activity, and all, all, all this junk—that's just what's killing hunting. Well, baby, let me tell you what. Without that monetary value, without that commodity value, there's no value at all in wildlife. And so they're gonna they're gonna be just relegated to the butterflies and the songbirds that nobody cares about really, you know. There there's a you know I look at I look at the value commodity value of hunting, a lot like pro sports. We hunters are recreationally enjoying this wildlife resource. Right. Same as we recreationally enjoy watching college football, watching pro sports, and and that recreational interest in those regards has generated. A multi-billion-dollar economy. Politicians—they <laughs> see one thing: money. That's political yeah. relevance. Money. Yep. Yep. And, and and you know, right now, best I can figure out, hunting generates about seven billion dollars to our economy. On the one hand, that's a whole lot of money. Sure. On the other hand, considering the New York City public school district annual budget is twenty-two billion. 
$75 billion nationwide really ain't too much. Yeah. To a $12 trillion economy, right. $75 billion ain't nothing. You know, so, so, but it's important. And in addition to that $75 billion that we're spending, we're still going to Ducks Unlimited Bank, which are Delta Waterfowl Bank. We're still spending money on raffle tickets and, and stuff we don't really need, but we do it for the ducks. And on top of that, I mean, just th think of the uh, on private lands. And I know it's a lot different in the Deep South than Wyoming, but this time of year down here in the Deep South, there are millions of acres being planted or to jap millet, to corn, to beans, to uh, manage for more soil management that are intensively being managed, fuel, water, seed, fertilizer, spray, time going into to wintering waterfowl habitat on private land. Right. That, that all of society benefits for. It, it's a, we American hunters demand it. Right. We demand it, you know, and it, it's scary to think that uh, in other countries like Argentina, they're clueless as to what they really have. They're, they're absolutely clueless. They don't, they don't know. And, and the only saving grace you got is the fact that you have so negligible hunting pressure relative right. to even Wyoming. Right. Right. Yeah. And we, and we're up in arms. I made a, I made a blog post about two weeks ago when it was announced that they weren't going to do another survey this year. They weren't going to be able to do spring, spring counts um, due to COVID two years in a row. And we throw up our hands like, what are you doing? You know, we're all upset. And you're telling me that there's whole continents and the rest of the, on the rest of the planet that don't have a clue and they don't. So I, I guess if, if it's hunters that are propping it up here in North America with our dollars and with our Pittman Robertson money and supporting these NGOs like, like Ducks Unlimited at Delta, does there come a point when we're, loving these ducks too much it does there come a point when when we could become our own worst enemy yeah i, I know what you're saying and it's uh I, I think i think we could uh you know i asked john devaney of delta waterfowl and he he gave a very uh scientific answer that i can't repeat i, I just can't articulate the way he did john is a very very good communicator and i asked him about this is the second year because of the pandemic that they aren't able to go up and survey and right. do the counts. Right. And um, they've changed that model a little bit. And that's, that's a saving grace is, you know, the seasons, most of the seasons have already been set based on last year's survey. So, so it's set like a, a year in advance. You assume there's a little time lag. And the great thing about wildlife management, whether you're talking white-tailed deer or even if you're talking forest management, if you're talking uh, any form of wildlife management, it, it's really not, generally speaking, it's not really uh, snapping the fingers and it's over. It, it's, it's a slow response. You, you, got a little, you got a little elasticity there in the population. Um, it concerns me that, that Canadian borders are shut and they won't let us they won't let my smart American scientists come up to count my ducks. I, you know, I, 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 like to, I, like, I like to know what's in the bank account. So I hear I go you. Swiping my debit card. You know? I hear you. I hear it bothers. you. So Trudeau open your borders, but, um, but, but at the same time, I, I really do trust uh, the system. I, I, I trust the system. Right. 
big wheels turn real slow, especially when you got all those moving parts we talk about. And I'm a little impatient sometimes, but but I trust them. You know sure. what I'm saying? I know sure. so no, many absolutely. of them. I know so many of them. I went to school with so many of them, and I trust them. I, I just trust them. I, I know they know what they're doing. If anything, that they seem to be uh, a little extra protective. You know what I'm saying? If you look, if you look at a lot of their policy in terms of say uh, bluebills, you know, I mean, there are more bluebills than ringnecks, but you can shoot one scop, six ringnecks. So right. in some of those, some of those regards, they are extra protective, and they take little baby steps to be sure. And that gives me comfort. That that gives me comfort, you know. And look at the deep south hunters. Not like we're killing a whole bunch of them down here in the deep south the last few years. And uh, one thing I noticed, and, I, and now I'm getting back on to what you asked. Um, I was in a state meeting not too long ago, comprised of state, federal, NGOs, and the state of Mississippi. All all the agencies, all the little NGOs were there talking about waterfowl and wetlands conservation in the state of Mississippi. And I was just a bystander. I love to go to those meetings. I was invited to provide perspective. I don't know what perspective I can provide, but I, I'm proud to be there. And some of the state guys were talking about uh, some public land, a very popular place in the state of Mississippi. It, it, it shot twice as many ducks as normal this year because the, the, the habitat quality was so excellent. And there was a line of, of standby hunters to get in, and they were turning down five or six parties a day. Yeah. And still those guys were coming back, and one of the biologists for the state said, you know, to a lot of people that we talked to, they are just proud to have somewhere to hunt. You know, that's, that's how important these public <clears throat> resources are. And I asked the question, I said, you know, I would like to see a survey or if they were surveyed formally, I'd like to see if the average person you're talking about favors quality over quantity. Right. And that's a, that's a question I find myself, I, I find me asking myself, Todd, it's, I think it's a question a lot of us wrestle with at some point in time. And the question I'm asking you, the listener, do you favor a quality duck hunting experience or quantity. In other words, would you rather go out 10 days a year and shoot nearer to your limit or go out 60 days a year and shoot one or none? That's a fair question. I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm getting of the age, uh, and I'm not going to stop. I, mean, I hunted 22 states last year, a bunch, 150 days, just traveling around, hunting with uh, friends and acquaintances and meeting new people and camps and uh, getting a sample. And I, but I hear this sitting in a duck blind with hundreds of people a year. I, I just hear this murmur that there aren't as many ducks, that the duck hunting is slower or whatever. And um, it, it, it just, all the hunters I know are proud to be there and they're good people and they're putting a lot of money into conservation, but they'd like to go out and shoot a few more ducks, wouldn't we all? I mean, let's face it, man, I don't care how old you are, if you duck hunt, nobody's out there just to watch the sunrise. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? We want to shoot something. Yeah, I mean, there's there's differences between between being as mad at them now as I was when I was 16 or 18 years old. A limit used to mean a lot more to me then than it does now. But at the same time, like you hit the nail on the head, I didn't go to watch the sunrise. 
No. I can, I can do that. I can do that from my front porch with a cup of coffee in my hand. But I'd rather do it in a duck blind if I can kill if I can kill a couple ducks in a day. That's awesome. But in the last <clears throat> few years, it it's just started to gnaw at me. You know, as you hear the conversations, especially in the South, about uh, decline. In my words, not you hear decline in hunting quality. It, it just it begs the question why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why hunting has changed since the good old days of the 60s and 70s. There's a lot of reasons in in, in the Mississippi alluvial valley delta, the delta. You know, it's a whole long algorithm full of inputs and reasons. You know, uh, different crop types, different water distribution, different water quality. Uh, there's many, many different reasons. But something's changed. You know, I interviewed my uncle, my 75-year-old uncle the other day. Todd, because I, you know, I, my grandfather, we didn't just sit around and watch television. That wasn't his generation. He liked to sit around a kitchen table and tell stories. Well, 40 years later, don't I wish I had recorded him. You know, oh, I, I, no. I wish I had, and I, I still remember a lot of them. And so I just reached out to my uncle and was talking to him about him growing up in those good old days, in the 50s and 60s and early 70s with my grandfather. And we talked about them going to camp and just a lot of cool things like that. And that generation didn't hunt like we hunt. Not only has the habitat and water distribution and maybe the climate and the weather and the crop types and a lot of different things changed since then, we modern hunters that have elevated duck hunting to art form, man, we are passionate. We are serious. You know, I'm not the only one that missed uh, Little League games or holidays or took schedule my leave at, at work around duck hunting i'm not the only guy that does that we all do that and right. maybe i live in an echo chamber because of the nature of my business to get ducks but every single person i talk to on the phone doesn't just hunt their backyard they hunt many places yeah in the united states and abroad you know and we all do practically every duck hunter i know has been or is going out to the central flyway or further up the north or over to the east coast or over to the west coast, you know, trying to get as many days as humanly possible. Because in Mississippi, the season opens the Friday after Thanksgiving and closes around January 30th. But if I can kick off and head north to Canada or the northern tier, I can start in September. See, I can add days to my overall year. Absolutely. And I love it so much. Absolutely. We love it. But, you know, Something else has changed since the 70s, and it's like uh, we had this old market hunter <clears throat> on our uh, – and look, I, by market hunter, I mean this guy was market hunting back in the 60s and 70s down in Louisiana. And, oh. uh, had, and he was a very, very good storyteller. But one thing he pointed out was back in the 60s, uh, before a lot of the hardwoods in Louisiana Delta had been cleared, he knew where some duck holes were. All his neighbors knew where duck holes were, but there were lots of places that ducks could go and not get hunted. Sure. And it's increased. Technologically, it's increased. So we've got a passionate hunter. We've got technology that we, we're not we're not walking in anymore. We're not riding little 
110 Honda three wheelers anymore. Man, right. we've got we've got thousand thousand uh, Rangers and Polarises, and we've got all this stuff that'll motors back. We've got mud motors and long tails and all this technology. And uh, man, there's hardly a, a, a square inch of the landscape that we can't access that yeah. we do access. Right. You know, we're passionate, and and it's it is uh you know we're better we're better at killing ducks. You know, we're better at killing we, ducks. Yeah, we, we we there there's really fewer and fewer places that there's more pressure. I think there's more pressure put on the United States ducks than there was back in the sixties and seventies, and there's right. fewer places that ducks can go and just do ducky things. <laughs> and I got yeah. I got I got drawn into a conversation on another podcast about corn up in Illinois. Oh boy. And you know, the behavior of ducks around the corn and doing this and the short stopping and all right, here's my question. Corn is grass. Chap millet is grass, rice is grass, sprinkle top is grass. Are, are you saying we should just ban flooded grass? Well no, no, I didn't think about it that way, okay. But those ducks are getting in that corn and you can't kill them. The, the way they're behaving around that corn, they're coming in and, and leaving and doing this. And I'm like, well, there's probably more to it than just corn. Because a standing flooded cornfield is not 200 pounds of corn dumped in front of you blind. I've done right. that down in Argentina. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's cover. It's habitat value. It's a, it, it is a place. Because if, if I'm hunting a 160-acre cornfield and i'm shooting in a pit blind i'm shooting 40 yard radius i'm covering an acre right i'm a forester i can figure that out i'm right. covering an acre of 100 that means there's 159 acres of dense cover a duck can get into and feel safe right maybe that's it <clears throat> you know i've talked to some of these biologists that are looking at uh, uh the satellite data on these on duck movements and stuff and how these ducks are, are behaving becoming nocturnal, staying on refuges, you know, it's like the big myth, the observation, antidotal observation is becoming a myth here in the deep south is all the ducks don't show up till February because Todd will go out to different properties and can't hardly buy a duck during season. A week after season closes, it's wild, wild ducks. Yeah, it's the same. They it, just ha showed up. it happens here too. But they didn't show up. They just, all of a sudden, there's no four-wheelers, there's no guns, there's no hunters. Now the ducks can just show up and they feel safe. So they're just coming out of hiding, you know? And so I, I think, you know, it's, it's a very challenging time for a wildlife manager, especially state and federal. But I think, I think it's really a trying time for us too, as hunters on, on how do we move forward? How do, how do we, let me ask you this, if you got young children, you know, there's so many competing interests for children right now. Oh, man. A, a kid only a kid is only going to go out and, and suffer through the duck hunt because if you ain't killing no ducks day after day after day after day after day, it really ain't much fun. Right. They got to have those good days. They got to have those quality days to kind of hook them in. We got to balance that, man. We've got a lot of pressure. I, and I see I see in places out west, uh, California, Utah, come to mind, sanctuary. You know, they, they, those clubs and those properties and those state and federal, they've got real inviolate sanctuary areas that those birds can get into. And they've got spatial sanctuary, geographic areas, and they've got temporal sanctuary to where 
heavily hunted properties, uh, in other words, a lot of public use, there, there's a multi-thousand acre sanctuary that you can't go into, and then they only shoot it two or three days a week. And it's crazy, man. I mean, that much hunting pressure on those Wednesdays and Saturdays, those shoot days, but the, but the quality's good. Right. It works. Right. So I, saw, I saw that exact. That. I saw that exact thing here. We got a little lease down on the river, and we got a bunch of ducks early, and it was like you said. They, they were nocturnal. The weather was warm. They were feeding at night. You could, you could get them as they were coming back to the river first thing in the morning for about an hour, and it was hot and heavy, and it was great. And we had, they, they really wanted to be in that one little spot. And we only shot it. I, I think we shot it maybe one day a week, Ramsey. I mean, it was like Saturday. You can go down on Saturday and shoot it. And not shooting into big groups, shooting pairs and singles, you know, whatever with decoy. Kind of trying to save those ducks, you know, and let them, let them have that spot. And some pressure started to come from the other side of the river that we don't have least and they and it started to come more often than what i wanted to see there wasn't anything i could do about it because it was what it was but man those ducks were gone in the course of a week you know they were they were just not there and the ones that did stay and tried to use it were completely diff, almost impossible to shoot you it, know it gets that way you got to remember you know I, i'll tell you the story uh, way back when a quarter century ago i was working with u.s fish and wildlife service in the north delta of mississippi i was a forester and did a lot of biological work too on a refuge complex that covered the entire north delta and one time ducks unlimited called and said their biologist called our biologist and said there's a cohort of ducks using y'all sanctuary at the homey refuge three of the hen mallards have uh, radio transmitters and I would have said back then that those ducks would hop off into one of the bean fields or rice fields nearby. That, right. That's where they were using just something very local. Like it's like if you lived in a big well, it's like if I walked out my front door and I drove a half mile, boom, there's, there's a grocery store, right? That's what I kind of sure. thought. Right. And, and do you know, Todd, that every one of those ducks, the band associated with that cohort and those hens that died, died 45 miles away. In Stuttgart, Arkansas, 45 miles. They, they were roosted in this little buck brush timber area. They would get up at daylight, fly 11 miles west, cross the Mississippi River, fly into the mouth of the uh, White River, and fly north up the White River through but just millions of acres of habitat to go, go to certain rice fields in Arkansas. And that really started changing everything I ever thought about duck behavior. No kidding. Wow. You know, I mean, how many, how many people blew calls at those ducks as they were flying? <laughs> and at that meeting I was telling you about, that wetlands meeting a few weeks ago, there's a property up in North Delta, Mississippi called York Woods. Um probably the crown jewel of Mississippi in terms of management and effort and everything else. Uh, very low hunting pressure, very elite uh, land holding, but right next to it, a mile maybe, is uh, Coldwater National 
wildlife refuge, part of the complex I used to work for, and it's the inviolate sanctuary. And I can remember flying surveys back in the day and looking down and seeing 50 to 60,000 ducks just on that 1,500-acre complex. Wow. Okay, dude, they were sacking their good. And the refuge manager and one of the guys, uh, one of the biologists in there got to talking, you know, with the crowd the other day. And they ban ducks on York Woods, and they do some band surveys, some uh, transmitter surveys. And what, they, what they've determined is mallards sitting a mile away on cold water refuge do not use cold water, uh, uh, York Woods. That's, that's I mean, crazy. A mile away, bazillion <coughs> mallards, but they don't overlap just that mile. They, they've got their own distinct little phyllo patchy for this area, right. these feeding areas. And that, that just, that kind of blows my mind. So, so you read, what that says to me is I read the uh, South Delta report where I hunt and all of a sudden we get a slug <laughs> of new birds. That doesn't mean they're all coming, equal chance of coming to my property. Just a, just a select few that have been there and used it for whatever reason. You see what I'm saying? I do. It, it's, it's, uh, it's just starting to change the way I think about ducks. They've learned the same thing with mule deer uh, out here with the mule deer migration. You've got does that go back to the same, they go back to the exact same places, summer range and, and then winter range year after year after year. They follow almost to the step, the same migration routes. And if those does get eliminated, you lose those does, then you've lost a whole bunch of bucks that would winter and follow the same the same migration. You'll have drain right. you'll have you'll have drainages with fathers, sons, and I mean a whole lineage of mule deer bucks in the same summer range, in the same drainage. You'll see different age groups. Well, there's a good chance they're all related, and the doe that brought them there as fawns is just down the hill, you know, a thousand feet, and that's where she winters, or that's where she summers. And then obviously during the rut, they disperse and they go all over the place and do things looking for other, looking for deer, looking for does. But at those summertime ranges, man, you can literally, you can literally shoot out an entire age, an entire genetic, um, a genetic group of mule deer. If you hunt them all on that migration route and cause you're shooting them, they're all related. It's nuts. And we're seeing the same thing with ducks. It makes me it makes me wonder makes me wonder and i'd be interested to hear what you have to say on this but it makes me wonder how important then not shooting hens becomes you know the biologists say the, <laughs> the biologists say it, it statistically doesn't matter yeah i, I don't see how it cannot that's me um, <laughs> that's... i don't see how it cannot you know and and uh but i'm i'm not that kind of smart biologist i was always more field oriented habitat more oriented and uh i don't understand it and and but we're starting to see some stuff like you know right now there's a movement underfoot take the pintails if, if look todd if i'm having a just a wonderful day and life is going too good all i have to do if i want to get my teeth kicked in on social media all i have to do is hold a limit of drake pintails from mexico 
and uh, you would think the sky is falling because uh, all us all us hunters that go to Mexico are killing too many pintail. And that's why there's no pintail. But uh-huh. it's, been, it's been demonstrated back since the 70s that no-till farming practices is a, a big culprit of pintail. You know what I'm saying? They they they're short grass prairie nesters got a long neck comes yep. up periscope yep. around and uh so much of the short grass prairie has been converted to agriculture and a lot of those prairie soils is no-till farming so you come into the farmer drives up this spring and he's looking at last year's barley stubble and pintails use it you know they nest in it and um and so there's a lot of eggs. They, I know a lot of those farmers are trying to avoid them, and I've seen contracts where they put chains to shoot the hen off. But that doesn't the eggs can't fly away. Right. And uh, and and so there's millions of eggs being disked under that. That's that's what they say. But there's a movement underfoot that after 30 years of uh, conservative pintail harvest management, the pintails really aren't boom responding and booming. And you go out to places like California, and every for every six to ten drake pintails you see, and there are just gazillions of them. You see one hen, uh-huh. and uh, and there's actually a, and right now the the continental the lower forty eight limit is one. There's there's a movement uh, to increase the bag limit to three pintails, no more than one hen. Because when you've got that kind of sex ratio skewed, as I understand it, those you know not all hens lay eggs equally. They're, they right. they they're getting kind of stressed out with boyfriends. Too much. They're too, yeah. They're too much pressure on them. Yeah. They're too much pressure on them. You know. And so there could be some things like that. I I know. Uh, who knows? I there's so much. So waterfowl have been studied so much, and yet the more I listen to biologists. And, and listen to some of these conversations, record some of these biologists, it, it's, uh, the, 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 it's almost like the more questions I have. I remember this back in the early 90s. I wanted to be a deer biologist. That's why I went to Mississippi State Wildlife Program. I wanted to be a deer, but I wanted to be the next Dr. Deer. And I ended up down on a South Texas ranch, 60 miles from the Mexican border, 107,000 acres of just free-range white-tailed deer, trophy management galore. And... I guess it was around early October. We were doing helicopter surveys. The monarch butterflies came through. And I don't mean just a bunch of butterflies. I'm talking about, you know, it's a real dry environment. (laughs) You would pull your truck down in, in, in this little shady area where the soil was wet and butterflies could lick the soil and get water. And there were so many butterflies, you couldn't see that little ram on the hood of the truck, the little dodge. I I mean, you couldn't see nothing. (laughs) It was just millions of butterflies. Wow. And as you read and study about those little bugs a little bit, it's hard to believe it, but it takes generations for the monarchs to migrate from Mexico to Canada and back. And yet their progeny will show up and lay eggs in the same spot on the same bush. It's unreal. Their pred- that their ancestors had. That, that just blows my mind. I know. I know. And along those lines, I heard this story. From uh, Doug Osborne was telling me the story. He had banded a widgeon and a associate, a landowner, he has called, and his little little boy had shot that widgeon oh. within seven feet 
of where it had been banded four years earlier. You know, it's interesting that you say Seven that. Seven feet. That's crazy. I did, uh, so woodcock. Growing up, growing up where I did, we shot a lot of grouse and a lot of woodcock, a lot of rough grouse, a lot of woodcock. And the local university and one of their biologists, one of the professors there started a woodcock banding project. And lo and behold, we're out hunting woodcock in kind of in the area where they banded them. And my dad shoots, dog goes on point, walk in, flush, dad shoots this bird, dog brings it back, and it's got a band on it. And it's bright, shiny, silver band. Well, it turned in numbers on it. Same thing. Same thing. It was like 30 feet, 35 feet from where they banded it. And they ended up, I think probably partially because of that, they ended up closing hunting down in that area. You couldn't hunt it anymore because they were killing all their banded birds before they had a chance to migrate. And they couldn't gather any info on them. But that's that's unreal that the, the bird would just stay right there. But, I mean, we see it with Canada geese on golf courses in the Midwest. They don't leave. You know, band them, they'll band them in the spring as soon as they're big enough to hold a leg band on. And they're, they'll come back the next year right to the same spot. We're going through some old photo albums with my uncle. My granddad passed when he was 72 years old and his entire hunting career back during the good old days boils down to two photo albums and five or six dozen little little square baseball card size photographs gritty as can be and uh but i have found some records and some notes of what he called goose club this was the central delta of mississippi it'd go out of lake ferguson go down the mississippi river in a in a boat big boat like a think of it like a Gulf Coast boat. Sure. And they would dig into sandbars and they would camp for two weeks. And the budget I found, you know, would be like ten pounds of butter, twenty pounds of flour, just a real camp, you know, military expedition. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, dig in and camp, you know. And uh wearing rubber waders and, and uh, uh uh Air Force flight suit, you know, for for uh camo and warmth and uh just just back in the good old days, but they, his passion. And if you talk, uh, oh, Hank Burdine, I, I interview a bunch uh, of Mississippi historian. They, uh, that generation were goose hunters, man. They were goose hunters. Never, there was a, a interior population of geese that flew that far south and on into Louisiana at times. But by the early, early to mid sixties, my granddad and that generation were driving up to Cairo, Illinois to yeah. shoot Canada geese. Right. And and now you talk to the folks around Cairo or, or Ballard County, Kentucky, there's very few geese. You know, because Kelly, what you're Kelly Powers. About. Kelly Powers told me that. Yeah, That's the his, migration. His same changed. thing. But here's something interesting. Now a lot of people say, uh, I don't like the word global warming. And uh it sounds too alarmist, but Let's face it, the, it the, the average winter temperature is warmer now than it oh, yeah. was. No, then. absolutely. absolutely. You want to hear, if you want to hear the words global warming over and over and over, go anywhere in Alaska. Yeah. Go anywhere in Alaska, and they'll, man, you'll, they'll wear you out with it because they're seeing real-time changes in terms of fisheries, in terms of hunting, in terms of just water and everything else. They're, they're seeing and experiencing it. But, you know, I believe, practically speaking, that uh, we humans – try to compress into everything in a human lifetime 70 or some odd years but the earth has got a geological time frame right. millions of years 
and, and there's a carbon cycle that just exists. You know, point in case, all those glaciers that are melting up in the Arctic didn't exist when Arizona was the bottom of an ocean. Right. You know, right. and, uh, and right. I'm, I'm powerless. Look, I'm powerless to change that. If, if all of America quit driving cars today, India and Pakistan and China's going to still be driving. So we humans are powerless against that. So let's worry about something else. But you know something interesting? We're talking about, you know, some of these migrations are changing, birds coming down. Here's something interesting. I, I noticed in the last few years, black-bellied whistling ducks are coastal species. Uh-huh. And um, after, <clears throat> back in 2005, 2006, hurricanes Katrina and Rita, a lot of coastal marsh damage, a lot of upward wind. And beginning then, I started seeing black-bellied whistling ducks nesting using wood duck boxes and everything else up in the Delta of Mississippi. Never saw them before then. Interesting. And this year, I was at camp for about a week, and my son had been out looking at some public land. He come in and said, I found a good good shoot for tomorrow. Why don't you and Mr. Ian, and I got a couple of buddies coming. We're going to go in there and hunt tomorrow. And I said, okay. So we hatched a plan. We're going to meet and park and walk a mile in. And it uh, been a while since I did that on public land. But it was worth every bit of it. But, but he told me, he said, there's a lot of whistling ducks. I said, really? He said, man, there are a ton of black belly whistling ducks in here. Now, usually in my lifetime, I turned 55 last week. Uh, since Katrina, you see these black belly whistling ducks in the Mississippi Delta. But usually around mid to late September, when the blue wings start coming through, those birds are gone. They're gone. They push yeah. back down the coast. They go back further south. And uh, we went into that hole about mid-January. I'm going to say ah, around Christmas, early January. We went in, and we shot half limits of black-belly whistling ducks. Oh. And, and I did the podcast. Uh, Big Water and I were talking about it. And my inbox blew up with people from Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio. I got a picture this morning, a video from a buddy of mine, Murrah Paget up in Delaware, an iPhone video of a pair of black belly whistling ducks nesting in Delaware. Those, those birds are expanding. Their population is expanding. And I told my son, I said, you know what's going to be crazy is it's possible that decades from now you're walking out of the woods with your son and y'all got another 12 you know or whatever black belly whistling ducks <laughs> from the strap in wisconsin and, and, and you, you tell you tell my grandson you know i can remember my daddy shooting his first ones when he was 55 during yeah. the ducks in mississippi duck season i've shot them down the coast before sure you know but then become a bread and butter duck so there's wow. you know, there, there's bound to be uh different kinds of changes and it's very interesting to see that's a that's a such a solid point because you know I remember when I first moved out here and saw green wing teal in January and I'm like what are you what are you little turds oh, doing what are you little turds doing out here and and we're not lousy with them like Utah can be yeah but we got lots of them and you know the blue wingers and they, they go through Labor Day weekend. We always get a push of them. And I, 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 keep, I wish Wyoming had an early teal season because there could there are some marshes that do fill up. Could You could have some good shoots. But um, I remember the, I was jump shooting ducks on a little prairie creek over in northeastern Wyoming. 
and that's all we had didn't have a lot of ducks in there but there was and it was december like you said about christmas time and i'm walking along jump shooting mallards i mean that's all that's what there was mallards and it was hard to decoy in there it was a real small creek anyway jump shoot i wade into this walk into this corner pop out and this pair of birds gets up and i knew they were ducks but it never registered in my mind what they were because i hadn't seen teal in the snow like that before and as they're flying away i went those are green winged teal well i was ready for them the next time and i was able to kill the drake but now i mean they make up a pretty a pretty regular place on our bag limit during during the day to me to me uh green winged teals are one of the most ubiquitous north american species i've shot they're, them they're in cool all bird. the habitats in all the states uh, from the opening day through the late season, I mean, literally from Delaware and uh, Maine and New Hampshire, clear over to Utah, California, like you say, deep right. south, far north, <clears throat> and they're, and they're really uh, anymore. They seem to be. And I mean, just purely anecdotal, but with the habitats I hunt and when I've hunted, they seem to be uh, more abundant. I see more of them maybe than mallards. Yeah, you know. I can it, see it, that. Just, um, and you know that's a that's a good problem to have. Cause I sure love green winged teal. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love not, them. Not not only are they fun to are they fun to hunt, but there's very few things that cook up in a frying pan like green winged teal does. Oh boy, I mean, uh, and it's just simple salt, pepper, and butter, and it's like that is all you need. I had, of course, working here with working here with the Eastmans, they're big game. You know that's been their whole life and i've been the last couple of years i've been able to get them out on some hunts and they really enjoyed themselves i remember ike actually killed a green wing teal one of the first times i took him out and he said all right and i said dude you got to eat that bird i said the rest of these are they're all good birds they're all eat but that one's special and i said you got to do something just just do me a favor and do this with it he took it home and he called me that afternoon and he said yeah my girls i he's like i got one little nibble and my daughters ate that thing up so fast it was <laughs> you, want me, you want me to tell you something funny from coast to coast north to south in, in the united states of america canada and mexico but everywhere in the northern hemisphere pakistan azerbaijan uh netherlands places like that, mongolia that that's their favorite bird to eat no kidding Green so it's, not, it's, it's not just us can we show up in some of these camps you know we always want to eat ducks and it's not like we go through and tell them what, what to cook. You know, we just say, right. yeah, we like to eat some ducks. And when they serve them that night, it's always green wing teal. That's the filet mignon of the duck world, I tell you. That it is really crazy. Is. And, 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 fat. Yeah, they're fatty. They're they're just good little bird. But And I really like growing up, we had a ton of wood ducks. You know, and we could only shoot two. But you'd go out and hunt a beaver pond for ducks. And you'd shoot your two drink wood ducks like, no problem. And there'd be a thousand or fifteen hundred wood ducks coming into that pond, and you're sitting around waiting for like a black duck or, God forbid, a mallard or something. And that's we had more wood ducks than we had anything else. And I always scratched my head. You know, you're young and you you don't understand things, but I always scratched my head. Man, why can't we shoot five of these like we could everything else? Well, because that's where all the wood ducks were at that time of year. And but we're it's crazy. I did a turkey hunt on the Yellowstone River on a jet boat uh, three weeks ago, four weeks, a month ago maybe, the amount of wood ducks flying up and down the Yellowstone River blew my mind. 
I mean, you, I, you expect to see a handful here and there, but we probably saw in that day, we, we saw a couple hundred wood ducks flying up and down, and they're all paired up, you know, getting ready crazy. in those big cottonwoods that are hollow, and th they must leave real early because you don't see them, you don't hardly see them out here in the fall. Every now and then somebody will get one, but this time of year, man, they were everywhere, everywhere. Speaking of uh, speaking of wood ducks, I was out in California, pintails, mallards, speckle bellies. You know that's that's what was teal. That's right. what was on my mind. I actually went on a hunt uh, down the Butte Sink on the river for wood ducks, and I was hunting with uh, Brian Huber, birdiologist who worked for California Waterfowl Association. He got to tell me about their wood duck box program in California, and it requires about 600 volunteers, you know, because wood duck boxes have to be serviced. You have to put pine straw and clean them out. Do right. Something, not pine straw, but wood chips. Right, right. And they have produced a million wood ducks. That, those, that nest box program has produced a million wood ducks. And that was the most incredible thing I've ever seen was hunting those wood ducks. That's the last bird on earth I expected to In California. Right. In California. But they, right. they've got a, a bunch of them in places. Yeah. Oh, and they're fun. They're fun too. I mean, nothing, nothing screams to the decoys. Like they're just kamikazes. How many shovelers y'all got out in Wyoming? Early lots. Yeah. Lots. They, they, that, you look be... like a shoveler killer to me now. <laughs> <laughs> shoveler killer? Sure. Shoveler eater. <laughs> no, I, I, we, we actually did a, we had a hunt two years ago, three, maybe three opening day. We guy had a problem with his irrigation and it flooded a bunch of his corn and it flooded it right, right to the ears. And holy, that doesn't happen out here. We don't have, we don't have flooded corn. And, but we did that day and I'll bet you probably half the ducks we shot were shovelers or we could have shot. It was unbelievable. And you'll go by ponds in the spring and man, those Northern shovelers are everywhere. And you see them big clown looking drakes, you know, and they're a cool looking bird. I remember the, fir the first time I ever shot one, Ramsey, we, we snuck up on this little beaver pond back in the UP and we looked up and we we're like, oh, there's teal. And we popped up and we hosted, I don't know, not, not two limits, but we shot a bunch of them and dog starts bringing them back. And I'm looking like, oh, they're shovelers. Cool. Yeah, God bless them. There, there are parts of the world they call them Ramzillas, and, and uh, that joke is caught on such that down in Mexico they got some of the places we hunt in Obregon. They've got Ramsey blinds, but then they got a, they got one Ramzilla blind. Yeah, is, you know when I show up, I go to it, and uh, if we if we shoot twenty ducks, you know nineteen of them are gonna be shovelers. Oh, and, uh, I tell you something funny is uh. Golly, this, I'll make this story quick. First time I hunted with Mojo down in Argentina, it was myself and the late Mike Morgan, who I've known since I was 19, and Terry Demon. And uh, we went out and shot a bunch of ducks, you know, all kinds of species down in Argentina. And after we got done, Demon said, uh, well, Ramsey, give us a rundown of what we got here today. And I started naming them off. Widgeon, Speckletail, white cheek Pintail, Brown Pintail, Rojabill Poacher, Red Shoveler, something, something. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he looked at the camera and said, I'm from Louisiana, ladies and gentlemen. I did not shoot a shovel. Well, that became a running joke. Mike was a homeboy from Mississippi. So a few years later, we went out to Texas. Demon couldn't make it, so he sent me and Mike. 
and uh, man, we shot mallards, we shot pantails, hunt them in the field, the river, with uh, the late J.J. Kent. And, uh, and he come into us on the third or fourth morning, he said, man, I have got a hell of a good sheep lined up. The problem is, it's nothing but shovelers. And Mike and I looked at each other and shrugged and said, well, that's fine with us, man. Yeah. Boy, let me tell you what, it was nothing but shovel. We shot, we shot. <laughs> There, there were six of us in the blind. We shot six limited ducks, one green wing. He, he just got mixed up with the wrong crowd, I'm afraid. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Dakota Stowers popped him. <laughs> we, we dug in. They named that episode. Well, we sent a picture to Denman with all those shovelers, and he texted back. And he said, uh, I will never let you two hunt for Mojo again without adult supervision. Yeah. And I thought he was kidding. <laughs> I told this story at Mike's funeral. I thought he was kidding. He wasn't kidding. He never sent us on assignment again. They they, they named that episode uh, Spoon and Crockett. It oh, most, perfect. It was the most watched episode of Mojo ever. Perfect. So this became a running joke. <clears throat> and I finally talked them into going down to Sonora. And we were going to target in December, target Mexican mallards. Uh-huh. Which are... Like a such that their own species, but they're mattered like you know, part right. of that 13 species matter right. complex. And in that regard, they, they represent to me one of the most underexploited mattered resources in North America because so few people down there will really put out the decoys and call to them and they'll they'll work great. So I talked them into going and I'm sitting in a deer stand one day thinking about this, and a buddy of mine, Jason Chuley, I think he's from Indiana, he had this. Uh, he's a, a world-class world champion decoy carver now i mean just a, the real uh -huh. deal. Yep. but as a little side gig he would you could send him in a uh used mojo and he would refurbish it into species they didn't make yeah i had this idea and i reached out to him in social media and said i want you to make me shove or decoy he said yeah that's fine i said well i want to um i want to put teeth on it he, he said what do you mean teeth i said well, you know like like teeth but he's smiling and uh man he started crawfish just a little bit he did and, and finally i said and i want a gold tooth in the middle of a smile and man he he just he come unhinged and i finally said look look this is a practical joke on the owner of mojo he said oh yeah. i'm all in so two weeks later it arrived at my house boom i could put it on a plane take it down to mexico and when i did the little film the little iphone film kind of showing it off i stuck it out there in the dark you know and terry didn't know what i was doing just putting the mojo out but as i did the little film an extra magnet had gotten under one of them wings to where it was cavitating real bad. Oh, jeez. And that just made it even funner. The thing went viral. And three days later, Demon catches me in the airport. We're fixing to part ways. He says, we're going to make that spoon, Bill. He said, I've had 50 phone calls. The office has gotten 50 phone calls. What is a Ramzilla and when are we going to produce it? I wondered I wondered about the backstory on that one because that blew the, up. Here's the funny thing. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that Ramzilla, that little, because it's a small decoy. I can carry it right. to far-flung places, put it in my bag. Other countries don't get it. I take it to Azerbaijan, Pakistan, wherever, wherever. They don't get it because to them, a shoveler's a duck. Right. They see that teeth, and they it just it's just lost in translation. It's not a smile of matter. It's not a Hollywood. It's not a baloney snatcher. It's just a duck. They don't right. get it. Right. You know, the, the uh, Australasian shoveler in Australia, they call it a blue wing shoveler, it's protected. That, that's their preeminent trophy species is a shoveler. 
that's the bird they all they all prize you know and uh so isn't it funny how a shelter just got this uh notorious reputation and i wonder how that started i don't know i don't know we it there there's a bird here that we get a ton of that, that exists to a lesser degree and that's the, the our common golden eyes and holy smokes i mean shell crackers i've heard them call. dude I, and they're and they are they're a sporting bird i mean they they dive bomb they buzz decoys like nobody's business they're fast they're a pretty bird they're super plentiful here at certain times i love gets, them when it gets real cold yeah I, I, and, you know, and, but for for a guy out here that, that wants to shoot mallards and it's like you get a bunch of dudes from from your neck of the woods that never get them and they want to shoot them they come all the way out here and shoot them and they're they're they'll shoot five of those things and be happier than happier than a pig and poop and i'm going all right i thought we were here to shoot mallards but <laughs> no i, I they love you, them. man i they love uh, them. mallards are mallards are, are the duck of the north american duck hunting world oh, think sure. about it the whole sure. culture evolves around mallards mallard yep, calls mallard decoys yep. They, they they behave right they do right they do good and you know you start climbing down a rabbit hole like we started off talking you know that's where the pass shooting jump shooting speedboat and everything else come from because not all birds behave like right. i'm going to africa in, a, in, a, in several weeks uh to follow up with a hunt down there you know cape shell ducks whiteback ducks a lot of those species aren't going to decoy you, you're either going to spot them and find them and jump shoot them or you're not going to get a shot right so, right so, you know when in Rome, and um, but matters make the world go round. That there's no doubt about no, it. Oh, that's true. That's and shovelers true. do too. Don't think I don't, <laughs> I don't shoot my shovelers. We know? just we just don't we don't get a ton of them. I mean, they're they're here, but by the, they're only here for you know our first split, our early split, and then they're gone, and you don't see them. You might see them a little bit, but for the most part, they're gone. So you don't get a lot of opportunity at them. But they're man, they're a cool bird, and there's times when yeah, that's all that's all you're going to end up with on those early hunts. A lot of clients that go to, in fact, all the clients go to Mexico. Uh, not all of them, but most of the clients go to Mexico. They've got this ideal of shooting a green wing because man, look in February those birds are perfect. Up. Yeah, they want to shoot a green wing, blue wing, cinnamon, and do a little trio mount it's a beautiful mount it's it, you know the whole north american little teal mount in one yep. little mount yep. it's beautiful but you know truth of matter is that green wing is kind of an oddball on that mount and uh a few years ago who american ornithological society that names these birds and speciates them they reclassified a lot of species uh from the genus anas into a genus called spatula now you've got shovelers and cinnamons and blue wings and gargany over and over in Asia and a lot of other birds, about eight of them classified under spatula. And, and it really makes better sense because you want to see a pretty mount. Look at the cinnamon, the blue wing, and the shoveler. Yeah. And say a dead mount. Look at their wings. They're, yeah. they're, they're nearly yeah. identical. It, it takes a biologist, <coughs> my very experience, to, to see just the wing and know what it is. Right. You know, and uh, so it, it really makes better sense. And when you start thinking about a shoveler as being first cousin to a blue wing, okay, a little more palatable then. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna use that one. I'm I'm using that one. That's like, well, it's just a he's just another part of a blue wing. Is all he is. He needs love too. 
It really <laughs> is. It really is. Oh man. Do y'all get a lot of swans there in Wyoming? No. Um they'll pass through. You see them occasionally here and there, but they're they stay in that Pacific flyway more than anything and they stay and they stay east of us more yeah. in, the, in the Dakotas. Yep. Um like I said, we you get some, you see some, but not that we don't have huntable numbers um that come through. That's that's why we don't have a season in Utah and Montana do. So I my life lives right weird. now. I, I'll continue traveling and doing what we do as the borders open with this pandemic thing. But uh, you think you're you gonna know, be able to go to Canada this year? Man, I I say oh. right now, uh, I I I say flip a coin, heads you do, yeah. tails you don't. Yeah. But, but really and truly, the best if you believe the politicians, if they don't move the goalpost, if 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 and but. Uh, Last I heard, talking to Ryan uh, Reynolds one of our U.S. hunt list outfitters, uh, just last week we recorded. Uh, beginning in June, they've got three 21-day phases for vaccinations. So, as I understand it, uh, first phase, second phase, third phase, will put them at around 75% population vaccinated. That would put them at August 17th. And they've said that if they achieve that, and here I am saying, if they don't move the goalpost, if they're right, right. Change, blah, 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 that they might start to open. Well, you know, so there, there's a chance. Uh, there is a chance it'll open. I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath, you know. And, and from a client perspective, it, it's I know this, you know, the average guy can't find out on August 20th that his that he's going to be able to redeem his September seventh hunt. He's got to make arrangements and work. He's got to buy airfare. So at best, only the latter half I think will be able to redeem it. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, guys like me and you, or guys like me, I mean, shoot, let me find out the borders open and that little white truck will be heading north, son. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was. It's interesting to hear you say that. I I put together a little blog uh, last week about you know, Canada open or Canada not, so what? There's lots of opportunity right here in the United States that you can take advantage of. You and make, I, that's a, thank you, that's a great point, because I, I asked Ryan this, think about this, man, think about this. All these guys were going to Canada, crossing the border, passports, declarations forms, the whole ball of wax, strip searches if you, if you cross ground oh, yeah. the wrong border. Right. And like I said, the next great hunt is closer than you think right here in America. And I yeah. wonder, I wonder how many people are going to want to go up to Canada to shoot two more ducks. I mean, when you can hunt them, I mean, North Dakota, Utah, I mean, the United States has got great hunts going on that time of year. It the does. Canada goose hunting, man, you know, there's a lot of states right now. Because of those resident Can New York, Wisconsin, North Dakota, 15 bird limits. I know. I, I know. Mean, that, that's a heck of a hunt, man. And they and they open in, in late August. Yeah. You know, it's it's and I and I talked about some of that stuff, Ramsey. That it's like if you're going to spend money on an outfitter, or you're going to spend money on a hotel or this and that. There's folks here in the U.S. that can use that money too. I guarantee you. You know, and it's like I, I kind of broke it down from moving early in the season in that northern tier of states with waterfowl and and upland. Because, I mean, there's no reason you couldn't go to the northern Minnesota or northern uh, Michigan or Wisconsin 
and hunt early geese in early September and in the afternoons when you're done hunting geese, go hunt grouse and woodcock. Why not? Absolutely. Or, Absolutely. or go walleye fishing or, I mean, the possibilities are endless, you know, and I kind of talked about that. Good grief. Come out, come out West and hunt mountain grouse and do some fly fish for trout. Absolutely. There's so much to do. And then, and I kind of followed it all the way down through in the months, you know, I talked about, obviously we think hard about January, about December, November, December, January, even into February out here. Um, but it, there's so many opportunities from where you're at to Texas. You know, I've, I've got an itch to hunt cranes in, in Texas for some crazy reason, probably because I grew up with ridiculous numbers of sandhill cranes in the east end of the UP that we couldn't hunt. And uh, I, I want to hunt cranes something fierce, and I will. I'll pull it off. But Well, thanks to COVID, and there's one silver lining of the whole experience from my standpoint, you know, can't travel. Couldn't go to Canada, couldn't go to Argentina, couldn't travel around. Right. And I just realized there was a lot of United States I'd not seen. And none of the conventions were going. SEI was yes. not happening. Dallas yep. Park Club didn't have no, shot, no show, shot didn't show. Yeah. Man, I left home on about the, uh, I started teal hunting, say the 11th of September, 12th of September, whenever it opened in Mississippi. Went down to Texas, Louisiana, came home, changed gears headed north got home for uh thanksgiving day the day after left uh saturday afternoon after thanksgiving come wheeling back in on christmas eve was home for a week in mississippi hunting with my kids left to go to california and 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 two weeks two days later went to mexico i mean man i, I killed 150 days covered 20 hunted 22 something states right I, I, you know and my life list changed because i want to go i realized man there's a lot of united states i haven't hunted well i'm, I'm down to eight states of the 49 i can hunt and i want to shoot ducks there right and, and experience it man and it's so rewarding to climb into a blind and just go hunt a little beaver pond uh in iowa or go hunt a marsh or go hunt public land or go just to see uh your slice of the world right your your little slice of the pie of american duck hunting is so rewarding and and now i've added another one uh i don't i, I think that uh i think you can apply to draw to hunt swans you can either buy them over the counter or apply but i think non-reds can hunt nine states you can hunt swans in 10 states and man i want i want to scratch a swan off in all 10 states that i can why not and and, and to hear the conversation I think swan opportunities may open up. Some of these other states in the upper Mississippi flyway may have a swan season soon. You know, I was hunting with some guys in Alabama, last story, on that big whirlwind tour. I come through northern Alabama, and we went out to this little property right next to Wheeler Refuge, private land, and uh, it was still, it was wanting to glass. That deep, six-inch deep, looked like a mirror. It was so still. And I was with a, a decoy carver and a historian and a biologist, and we go out with their kids, and and uh, we shot a pair of mallards. That's it. And but that was it. Check killed a kill a kill a duck in Alabama. And about this time, these Canada geese started working over the refuge, and they broke out calls, and they called them, and they weren't going to land this little bitty pothole we have. Right. It was a it was a flyover about thirty yards high. Bam! I shot one, and my host just went nuts. He's like, "Man, you guys, that's unbelievable!" And I go, "Well, it's just a." Canada goose is 
I've been hunting here five years. And that's the first one we shot. And he says, Ramby, when we get done, I'm going to show you something <clears throat> and, and why you'll appreciate this. I said, okay. So we go park a truck and over there by where we park a truck up front, and there's a little storage shed and we open it up and there's this mountain, this pile of these homemade silhouette decoys. And I'd heard of the lost flyway of Alabama before, but on this property right in the city limits of Decatur, Alabama was this, this club they were hunting it used to be a, a goose club, Decatur goose club. And the number one rule was those decoys I was looking at got stuck out in the fields around the blinds on opening day and never left. And he was telling me that gravel road we were parked on. He said, you'd come out here when the geese were in and, and there were just guys sitting in trucks heaters running, smoking cigarettes, whatever, waiting on their turn to get in their pit. You shoot two, your second rule was when you get your two goose limit, get out, out somebody out. else. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And now those geese don't come there anymore. Huh. But you know what's happened is the greater Sandhill crane population, Alabama, God bless Alabama, man. They work with fish and wildlife. They got these biologists on board and, and they have created a lottery system for residents only right now to shoot Sandhill cranes. Those Sandhill cranes have moved in have exploded and are occupying the same ecological niche as those Canada geese, those did. geese did. So now yep. this whole new culture is evolving. <clears throat> I mean, it, 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 you know, we could sit here and whine and complain about the lost opportunities and how life is different than my great granddaddy. But man, you know, there are new opportunities coming up that we can avail ourselves with. Absolutely. You, know, you, you got to find a silver lining. We got to see the glass half full. We've, you know what, in this day and age, you got to love duck hunting for what it is and for what it ain't, yeah. you know? And, and at the end of the day, it really ain't just a stinking pile of dead ducks. It's so much more than that. Right. And, you know, you get it and, yeah. and the folks listening get it. And I've got, and I've got two little girls that are ate up with it. You know, they, they want to go as often as they can. And, and I bring home birds and my three-year-old doesn't, but I, I have to wrestle them away from her to get them, to get them clean to be able to cook them up she's just fascinated with them just ate up with it and in fact i just got back from a, a turkey hunt last last weekend when i did a turkey hunt with my oldest and uh, i i think your point about there's going to be changing opportunities the opportunities are going to continue to exist especially if we continue to follow the model we have and continue to work together and create the future for it so that my kids your kids your grandkids are those future generations are going to have ducks to hunt and places to do it no matter where that might be and so the stories because that's what duck hunting's about it's about stories it's about people and places and tradition and heritage it's about stories that those stories continue on you know you have a youtube video uh about an old colt hammer gun oh boy and I was, I've watched, I bet I've watched it two or three times. My dad, I sent the link to my dad because my dad's an old, he's an old shotgun guy. He was all stoked. He just got his two Parkers back. He's got a couple of Parker BHEs, one in 12 and one in 20. And he just had the wood refinished on him. He was sending me pictures. I said, you're going to love this video. And he did, he ate it up. Thought that was, thought that was cool. You know, he, he's going to, he's going to order some business shells for us so he could shoot his Parkers. But, uh, that's what that's what it is that's what it's always been to me i grew up reading gene hill stories you know oh, yeah. and 
wanted to go to see the East Coast. I remember going to the Waterfall Museum in Easton, Maryland when I was in junior high. And what an impression that left on me. And growing up in the Great Lakes, there's a rich history of especially diver duck hunting that goes back. It's old and it's the boats and the decoys and all that stuff. And there's guys that are still using hand-carved decoys. Um, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. And I, that's one of the things I appreciate about talking with you is no matter where in the world you go, that's what you're after is that story. It's not necessarily about the ducks. The ducks are the vehicle to get you to, to get, to get you to the story. They're the conduit. You're exactly right. And I, I think every one of your listeners is nodding his head right now. They get it. I mean, that's, that's yeah. really what some of the younger guys, you got to go through that stage and that phase. You go through those phases. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. But, but there's no, uh, numbers in and of itself dead ducks is not fulfilling it doesn't create purpose not long, so not it, long it, it really not does long it's, that, it's that tradition it's that tradition from and that's you know <coughs> that gun represents to me how the land changed and how technology changed and how we as as duck hunters from my great granddaddy to now have changed uh how, how we as humans have changed because of technological advancements but you take duck hunting worldwide, even in Russia, Mongolia, Argentina, the world. It, it's always boils down to just that fundamental, that fundamental of duck hunting, that tradition, that fundamental, that value, that intrinsic value of duck can be passed on. Dead yeah. ducks can't be passed on. Those values of conservation and hunting and ethos, that, that, all that can be passed on. And that's what's so, so important about it. And uh, I, I just, it, it, the older I get, and I'm not an old man yet, but the older I get, the, the more, the more it hits home to me. And, and I just, I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of false narrative in the outdoor world. And let's face it, man, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these young people today, they don't have the benefit of a dad or a granddad to take them out and pass that tradition on. They're, they're kind of having to find themselves. Like or who, who or who or who grew up who grew having up to find them, they're having to yeah. find themselves in the dark exactly. and they, they need yeah. some real leadership besides yeah. just buy my product they need real leadership you know so that, that's where we try to do and i would invite look uh i, I really appreciate y'all having me on your podcast oh anytime I, I i like talking about the story i like to hear the story of duck hunting we we started a, a podcast ourselves right in fever of the pitch fever of covid uh yep we, we had time so we started a podcast called duck season somewhere i invite anybody to come listen to it but it's not so much me talking as having guests on everybody yeah. from historians to biologists as we traveled the, uh, around the united states and canada and we travel around the world talking to those duck hunters right because and, and trying to capture that conversation that i've heard so many times that this duck hunter that practices another religion, has darker skin, lives in a different part of the world, different culture, different everything. He's a duck hunter. And here we are in a pitch black dark, different worlds apart in terms of culture and language, but we communicate perfectly. Yes, sir. We're just a few hand signals. Thumbs up. We're speaking the duck. Unless he's Russian. Yeah, hang on, baby. When that speedboat comes down, you better hang on. 
Oh man. Yeah, you're good. You're good unless he's Russian. You're, you're good. <laughs> yeah, you'll be glad they got vodka back at the back yeah. I promise you. Settle those you nerves. Need it to settle your nerves. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, oh my uh, goodness. You know, it's 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 funny you say that because our Facebook page, the Wingman Facebook page, is is pretty successful actually. We've had a couple videos with monstrous views, and I would dare say that half the half to the majority of those views on some of, on those videos, a couple of those videos, are from Asia and from the Middle East. Absolutely. And I have a ton of followers that like everything I post. And they'll comment, and I gotta translate it because I gotta hit Google Translate and copy and paste it in because I don't I don't know what they're saying. But no, they're, they're still, but, they, that, but they're hunters. They're hunters. The, the Muslim world are, you know, you wouldn't believe. Do you know? Do you know that the most ducks that I've ever shot unbaited, the most ducks I've ever shot in a single hunt was in Pakistan. Really, Pakistan, and uh, it, it, mostly green wing. Uh, Eurasian green wings, but it was unbelievable. Th- those guys are serious, man, and right. uh, very serious hunters. Right. Yeah, it it's kind of blew my mind. We, we put up a, I don't remember what it was. Well, it was a, we did a pheasant video where we told the story of ringneck pheasants, how they came to the United States and how the a lot of states use them as a hunter recruitment tool, in Wyoming included. And we, we went out and we shot some birds with we had some kids along. It's cool video. It's cool video. I never in my wildest dreams that I expected to have six million views on Facebook. Wow. But yeah. it does. But it does. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's I, I would bet I bet the majority of those views are from Asia, you know, and from yeah. the Middle East. It, and it I didn't see that coming. But yeah, cool stuff. You know, cool stuff. Hunters are hunters, waterfowlers, bird hunters are bird hunters, wherever you go. And yeah, the, those stories. That's one of the things I like about your podcast is it's stories. Yeah. You know, and you turn it on and it's just dudes talking about hunting ducks and about the stories around it. That's cool. I, I That's where I'm at in my phase. You know, we talked about those phases where when you first start out, you want to get a duck. No matter what it is, you got to get a duck. You know, and I look at Nebraska and I think South Dakota went to choose choose your limit this year. You could choose whether you wanted a traditional five-bird yeah. five limit or you could, and, it, and you had to stick by, you know, you could have four Drake Mallards and yada, yada, or you kill three ducks. Doesn't matter what they are, what species, what sex, but that's it. You get three ducks. What and would you choose if you hunted Nebraska? I'd choose that five I, because I, could, I felt like I, I feel like I could still pick and choose what I wanted. But if I had kids with me or people new to the sport, I'd be like, man, choose the three. Choose the three. Because then you're going to get to just shoot at a duck. We, we take kids all the time. They don't care what they're shooting. They just want to pull the trigger and kill a duck. Is that rule limited only to a certain age bracket? I don't think so. I think it's aimed at, I th- I'm pretty sure it's aimed at hunter recruitment across the board, not just age. And the idea being, you know, we all, we talk about it. At first, you just want to shoot a duck. And then you, you do that for a little while. And it's like, okay, now I want to shoot a limit of ducks. Yeah. And then that turns into, I want to shoot a limit of all green heads. Oh, and then that goes into, I want to shoot a limit of all green heads with a 
over and under shotgun. You know, there's different ways of doing it. It becomes about the method. And then it pretty much pretty soon becomes about less about killing the ducks or the, the way you do it. And it's just more about being there. And if you get a couple ducks, that's great. That's kind of where my dad's at right now. I don't get to hunt with him much, but he, he came, comes out in the wintertime. And we had a, my best day in the blind last year was with him. And we shot three ducks. Yeah. Shot two, two Drake Mallards and a Drake Greenwing Teal. Real life happens between the volleys. That should be on a t-shirt. You know, it really does. It, it's uh, because duck blinds <coughs> are are the least woke places on earth. <laughs> I can talk about anything. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and how 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 little do you really talk about ducks or duck hunting in a duck blind? Uh, not I, very I, much. I, a it, really bit. Hit, it really hit home. Yeah, I remember back in high school, there used to be these bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I never yep. wore one. But let me tell you what, I had kids, and I wanted one WWAD, what would Andy do? Because, man, kids will throw you curveballs. Yeah, maybe your kids ain't old enough yet, but I, I scratched my head many times going, what starting. would Andy say to Opie right now? Right, they're starting. So, my, oldest, my oldest is starting. But by the time they got in high school, especially as they got, you know, junior, senior level of high school, you see, you know, with sports and girls and uh, studies and iPhones and just all the modern day encumbrances, you know, you just don't see your kids as much as you think you would. And But right. boy, we've been a duck flying together and we had those conversations you wanted to have and you needed to have. And, yeah. it, and it wasn't forced. Yeah. It just came organically. Right. And you, you see know? that we did it. We did it. Father, father, kid, mostly girls did a goose hunt a few years ago and, and, uh, two years ago and three little girls, four years old. And one of them was guy Eastman, Mr. Big game himself calls me two nights before. He's like, Hey, I got a favor to ask. I said, what's up? He said, can I go do something with you on Saturday? And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. Of course you can go do something with me on Saturday. He said, well, there's a catch. I got to take Cora. I got to take my, my daughter. I said, perfect. She's friends with my oldest daughter. And then we got another guy in the office who has a daughter the same age. So we just took all three of them. And then another guy brought his son, who was, I don't know, 14 at the time, never killed a goose. We went down there. And Ramsey, it's exactly what you said. It wasn't about the birds. And there were lots of birds. And we killed more than we, you know, more, more, more birds than we really needed to kill. I mean, we didn't kill a limit, but we killed. We had plenty of fun is what I'm trying to get at. And... But that's not what it was about. It was about an hour into the morning. And the guy looks over at me. He's like, this isn't, this isn't about hunting. This is just a coffee club with shotguns. That's all this that's is. Right. And donuts. And I said, <laughs> I, I said, you're damn right. I said, that's a good. And he's like, well, if I'd have known that, I'd have been coming along the whole time. <laughs> Heck yeah, I guarantee you. You know, but it's not like an elk hunt where it's, it's high stakes. You know, where you're going to go out and you might get one opportunity at the animal you get, the specific animal you're after. So you, you miss a, you miss a volley on geese, wait 20 minutes, there'll be another, there'll be another bird or two come through. And our kids were running around, they're all wearing bright pink snow suits and it doesn't matter. You got them in a blind, you know, and good grief. It was about chocolate milk and donuts and coffee and having a good time. And we killed 15 or 20 geese and <clears throat> Those kids still talk about that hunt to this day. 
And one of the things that guy said was, you know, it, it strikes me that if we didn't, if you don't get them out there at that age and continue that on through, they'll never take to it because they get too many competing factors later on as they get older. They do. And, and, and I've, I've said this a million times, but I believe it to be true as a daddy. Children spell love, T-I-M-E. That is so and, true. And, 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 and I just don't think um, – if there's a better place to spend that time with children than the outdoors, I don't know where it is. No, I completely agree. And, you know, we're blessed where we live because we can, we have a big, 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 big backyard here in greater Yellowstone country. <laughs> oh, you <don't> you? <laughs> <laughs> there's places I don't take them because of the local wildlife, you know, gets, a, I don't want to have a problem with a, a four-year-old and a grizzly bear, but, uh, uh -uh. but otherwise, I mean, my gosh, what better place to raise them? You know, and I, I, I have some friends down in, in the South, Georgia and Alabama, and they come out here and it takes them a little bit to, to, to adjust to just let your kids go, you know, be up in the mountains and it's like, nothing's going to bother them here. Just let them go run, let them go play, let them do their thing. Yeah. You know, there's not, they're not going to get kidnapped out here. They're not, nothing bad's going to happen to them, you know, and ah, it's it's pretty cool but you got to start that early and that's that's part of what it goes back to with duck hunt for me that was a time to spend with my dad you know paradox, the paradox we were talking about hunting pressure earlier and the paradox is this it's a foregone conclusion that our children are going to hunt or be introduced to hunting but still hunter participation is declining overall and, yep. and, and what we need is what somebody coined the term adult onset hunter we need these you think think about this i agree think about I, this guy an eight-year-old kid is going to be 20 it's going to be two decades before he can meaningfully contribute to that economic right. benefit absolutely the 30 year old sitting next to you that would just like to go out and share a blind he can contribute now if he gets eat up with it the paradox is where they're going to hunt, how we're going to get along, how we're going to manage hunt. That's, and, and that, that was kind of what I was getting at with my, are we loving, are we hunting ducks too much? You know, with that, with that question, is it, are we trying so hard to make it? And, and I don't think we are. I, 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 I think. No, I think, I think we hunters uh, can get along. I, 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 I really, too. truly, I in my too. heart of heart, you know, I'll tell you something very interesting. When I first started getducks.com, we first started going to Argentina, say, 18 years ago. One of the first questions, and this is a very uh, small sample size, antidotal, observation only. One of the first questions, one of the top questions, how many ducks can I kill? And now we're booking many, 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 many more hunters. And ah, that question might eventually be asked. Sure. But, sure. but it's not. It's all about the experience. And, and I, see, I see that as a... Uh, I see that it's kind of like a value system or something evolving in the American hunter, that quality over quantity. And I, and I, I think, I think I truly in my heart of heart believe that we hunters collectively, the majority of us can work together to, to with the NGOs, with the state and, and federal agencies to come up with a, you know, to perpetuate the future of hunting in, in, a, in a meaningful way. I, I, I got, I got faith in not all of humanity, but in the hunting segment of humanity, the folks I know, I got, I I got the utmost faith in our in us to fix this thing. Yeah, no, I hear, I hear you, and yeah, and and we're blessed here. Like I said, we we got we got a big backyard to play Hunters in. Hunters don't but, eat Tide Pods, you know. Yeah, 
<laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. No, I, I completely agree. But, well, dude, we've been talking for almost two hours. So that's yeah. been, that's a good, that's a good chunk of time. And I, I've had a great time visiting and, and chatting and we need to get you out here. And I think you said Wyoming was one of the state chat and kill a bird in. Well, I've, 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 I have, I've hunted down, okay, uh, okay. hunted down Southwest, but there's a, there's a real good chance I'll be swinging <laughs> through your neck of the woods this year. Uh, I'm going to, I, I, we, we did that North American tour last year. And I just enjoy now. The only problem is this year, convention and shot show will be going on. So that will yeah. be a little bit of a stick in the spokes. But I plan on traveling from September through end of January, less than except that that couple of weeks. And uh, right. I will right. be coming through Wyoming sometime. And holler at me. <clears throat> yeah, holler at me. Then I'm going to turn on the recorder and, and we're going to have your conversation. Have Sounds your good. interview. Sounds good. Uh, we can We can absolutely do that. We can I, would, I would invite anybody listening to check us out, Duck Season Somewhere, social media, at Ramsey Russell, get ducks on Instagram. Uh, you know, stay in touch. It's a very organic, and we're, we're not a production. It's just organic, you know. You bet. No, that's one of the things I, that I like about yours is it's, it's just stories. It's, it's organic. It's raw. It's real. I like it. But well, I Ramsey, appreciate y'all having me. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank, thank you for jumping on with us. And, 